What on earth is God doing? When people we love just give up on Christianity or or just don't seem interested in the message, it, it can be hard to understand. What's God doing in situations like that? I'm sure we all know people who have wandered away from following Jesus. Uh, People who've shown all the signs of being Christians, but then they just gradually drift away. Or maybe it's someone we know who's suffered a tragedy, and rather than turning to God, it's turned them off God. And they're angry, and they want nothing to do with him. For some of you, it's your children. They've grown up in the church, but then they've grown out of it, and they turn their back on Jesus. Or maybe it's slightly different. Uh, Maybe it's a friend or family member or co-worker who's who's heard the gospel lots of times. They know it all. They know who Jesus is and sin and repentance. They know about judgment and eternal life, but it has no effect. It's like there's a brick wall there. That's the way it was with my grandmother, with my dad's mum. And when she died, I remember being really struck by... I was only a teenager, but I remember realising that as far as any of us could tell, she was destined for an eternity separated from God. I was deeply troubled by that. It was terrible. What on earth is God doing? Is the gospel powerful to change people or not? Does God want to save people or not? Why is it that the ones we love, the ones who hear the gospel again and again, just seem to reject it? It seems like God doesn't love them as much as we do. Now these are the questions that the Apostle Paul is wrestling with here in Romans chapters 9 and 10. We're coming back to Romans after a break, but do you remember the background? The church in Rome, it was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And over the years, there'd been friction between them, disagreements about how the Gentiles fit into the people of God, who used to just be the Jews. But since Jesus came along, now everyone is included. Because the message of Jesus is that it's about simply trusting him rather than earning salvation yourself. It's a message about trusting his perfect obedience rather than our faulty obedience. And it's no longer about keeping the law, about being circumcised and eating kosher food or keeping the Sabbath. And so as Paul writes this, for the last 20 years or so, he's taken that good news of Jesus to his fellow Jews first. You can see the way he does it in the book of Acts. In every new city he arrives in, he goes to the Jewish synagogue first and he tells them about God's Jewish Messiah who'd been promised in the Jewish Uh, Jewish scriptures. He spoke about how Jesus had come and brought forgiveness and the gift of the promised Holy Spirit and that all these Jewish people had to do was to trust it. They were the most obvious ones to come to trust Jesus, the most natural Messiah followers. But at that point, for the most part, he he was told to leave the synagogue or, or he was beaten up and thrown out. And then he'd walk across the road and he'd find somewhere where there were Gentiles and he'd start telling them the same message. But here people became Christians and so he planted churches. 
But despite all these wonderful conversion stories, all the Gentile cities across the known world where Paul had planted churches and God had saved Gentiles, there was still this nagging doubt for Paul that wouldn't go away. What about his own people, the Jews? Why wasn't God saving them? They had every advantage and yet most of them want nothing to do with Jesus. And it was breaking Paul's heart. Do you see there in verse 2 of chapter 9? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's just finished in chapter 8 describing the wonderful benefits that come to Christians, perhaps the most glorious chapter in the whole Bible, about how God foreknows and predestines and calls and justifies and glorifies people And so nothing can separate Christians from the love of God in Jesus. But that just doesn't seem to have applied to Paul's own people, the Jews. After all, surely they are the most obvious recipients of God's mercy, the ones that God has made promises to. Look at what Paul lists in verse 4. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. It's the story of the Old Testament, all the gifts God's given them to help them come to know uh, Jesus. But none of them have worked. It should have led them to Christ, but instead there's nothing. And it's left Paul asking tough questions. Firstly, is God faithful? Has God's word failed? Can we trust God? Is he reliable? He promised that Israel would be his people and that he'd be their God, but it doesn't look like that. Has he broken his promise? Or maybe he's changed his mind, chosen a different plan. Or perhaps he's not able to keep his word. Maybe the message of the gospel is not powerful enough to call people. Has God's word failed in that sense? It can't deliver what he wants for it. Perhaps that's the problem. Well, from verse 6, Paul answers his question. Is God faithful? Verse 6, of course he is. It is not as though God's word has failed. And then to prove his point, he gives a history lesson. His point is there have always been Jews who don't benefit from God's promises. For example, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and God's blessing to Abraham only went to one of them, to Isaac. Verse 6 continues, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. The way things are working in Paul's day is no different from that time. God's promises have always been for some, but not for others within Israel. Well, does that mean 
that uh, one deserved God's promises more than the other? No. From verse 10, Paul explains the way God's election works. And once more, he uses a history lesson. Jump ahead to the next generation. Uh, Genesis chapter 25 tells us about Isaac and Rebekah, who have twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, And there in verse 11, we read, Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. God chooses which of the sons he will build into a nation. It's nothing to do with their qualifications, nothing to do with their merit, but completely up to God. Nothing to do with people. One is a child of the promise and one isn't. One is called and one isn't. He did it with Jacob and Esau. He did it with the Jews in Paul's time. He chose some and didn't choose others. And it's the same today. There are people God chooses and there are others he doesn't. And it doesn't depend on their intelligence or their goodness or what family they're born into. I don't know who they are. None of us do. But our job is simply to tell whoever we meet about Jesus, to invite them to repent and believe. And when they do... That's how we know that God has chosen them. And while we may not understand it, there's actually a comfort in that for us, uh, in God's election. It takes the pressure off uh, because it means that whether someone responds or not, it's about God's choice. And it's not necessarily about how clearly we've explained things or about how consistently uh, we've lived Now those things matter, but in the end, we can leave the results up to God. And it keeps us from guilt and worry, because God calls us to be faithful and to speak and to leave the results up to him. But back to Paul. Someone may complain, but Paul, election's not fair. If it's got nothing to do with us, then it's not fair that God chooses some but doesn't choose others. So that's the question Paul addresses from verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? And Paul's answer? Not at all. And he gives us another history lesson, verse 15, when God brought Israel out of Egypt. For God said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion doesn't depend, therefore, on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Paul's point, don't focus on those who aren't chosen. Think instead about those that he has chosen. Focus on God's mercy rather than on his fairness. Because to actually not choose someone, to judge someone, that's actually fair. Everyone who's not chosen by God is dealt with justly because we all deserve judgment. But it's grace that's not fair, mercy that's not fair. None of us deserves mercy. But the incredible, glorious uh, news is that God has shown mercy to some 
In fact, Paul goes on, verse 17, Pharaoh himself was raised up simply to show how amazing and merciful God is. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh wasn't saved. He was judged. But he was God's instrument to show how powerful God was and how merciful when he saved Israel from Pharaoh. But that leads to another question, verse 19. If Pharaoh was an instrument, if we're all just instruments, how can God blame us? If he just moves everyone around like chess pieces, choosing some, not choosing others, then what right does he have to judge us? That's the question he asks in verse 19. And his answer is a surprising one. In some ways, it's basically not an answer. Do you see it there in verse 20? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? It's impossible for us to understand how, on the one hand, God can elect, how God can control his world and use us as instruments, but at the same time, he allows us to have real choices, to respond to him in belief or unbelief, and then to hold us accountable for those choices. Now, now both of those things are true. But more than that, we have no right to even question God about the way he's made us or the way he does things. Like a clay pot asking why the potter creates it in a certain shape. We are simply creatures, created things. We just have to accept the way that God has created us, even if we don't understand it. Or better still, a better response is to rejoice that he's shown us the riches of his mercy. That's the right response to the mystery of election, even to the non-election of some. That's Paul's point from verse 22. Have a look at it with me. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Paul is describing the whole of God's big plan for everything, how he's planned judgment against the objects of his wrath, including some of the fellow Jews that Paul's heartbroken about, God has planned judgment, but he's patiently waiting to bring it for the sake of his elect, so that the objects of his mercy will come to repentance, that they will come to know the riches of God's mercy. And those objects of mercy, God's elect, they're both Jews and Gentiles together who are part of his new church, his new people. Well, that's God's side. Uh, 
But if we jump down to verse 30, Paul shifts gear and he approaches his, his big question from a different direction. He, his question, what is God doing? What's he doing with the Jews? He's looked at it from God's side, but now from verse 30, he wants to look at the question from our point of view, from human responsibility. How is it that the Jews, those who are at the front of the queue, miss out on God, but the Gentiles, those at the back who are not even interested, uh, get chosen? Uh, look at his question in verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. That, that's the puzzle. The Jews look like they're pursuing God, but they don't find him. Why not, verse 32? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. From God's perspective, the answer to the Jews' rejection is because he hasn't elected them. But if we think about it from the human point of view, the answer is because they've tried to earn it rather than to trust the gift. Whereas that's what the Gentiles have done. Verse 30, they have obtained the righteousness that is by faith. The gospel message. It says, you are a sinner. You can't fix yourself on your own, but God will forgive you because of Jesus' death in your place. A free gift, just accept it. And that's what the Gentiles are doing. They trust the word. They receive the gift of righteousness in all of the cities where Paul is preaching and planting churches and in Rome as well. But the Jews, they thought they knew better. They proudly tried to be right with God through their own efforts. And it doesn't work. They've stumbled, verse 33 says. They've stumbled over the message and over Jesus it all seemed too easy and too simple. It seemed foolishness. It seemed too good to be true. They thought they, uh, there just had to be some sort of effort involved on their part. And as we move into chapter 10, we see what that Jewish effort looked like. Jewish works of the law. Verses 1 to 3, they were certainly zealous but it's not enough just to be sincere, to believe strongly. Look at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Being sincere is one thing, but if it's ignorant sincerity, then it doesn't matter how strongly you believe it, it's still worthless. It doesn't matter how much I believe that an orange is an apple, but that doesn't make it so, just by believing it. Their, their zeal, their sincerity needed to be directed in the right direction. It needed to be based on true knowledge. They needed to trust something that was true and reliable. God's righteousness rather than trusting something false and faulty their own righteousness in law keeping 
And so what all of that means, chapter 10, verse 4, is that Jesus is the, the end of the law. He's its replacement, its logical conclusion. Uh, the law that was for Jews only. But now that Jesus has come, the only requirement is faith. No longer circumcision or keeping the Sabbath or eating the right food. And so what that situation means, verse 4, again, is that there's righteousness for everyone who believes. That there is no distinction anymore. It's available for Jew and for Gentile. And then from verses 5 to 13, we see what faith looks like. We see how faith shows itself. We see the works of faith. It's not seen, faith is not seen in some superhuman effort of 100% obedience. You don't have to climb up to heaven. You don't have to travel to the bottom of the ocean. There doesn't need to be a pilgrimage to impress God. He's not interested in superhuman tests of strength or ability or memory. It's all so much simpler when it, it comes to faith. It's just like it was for the Israelites in Moses' time. In verse 8, Moses says, The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith we're proclaiming. The Jews had tried so hard to earn God's blessing, but that's part of the problem. It's not as hard as that. The answer is right there next to them. They just need to speak it and believe it, which is what the Gentiles have done. Here's Paul's message. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's simple. And so that means, verse 11, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's no distinction. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Paul has one final question, uh, one final question to answer. If all the Jews had to do was to believe the simple word that Paul preached and then just call on God, maybe the reason they haven't done that is that they, they didn't hear. They never heard the message. And so verses 14 and 15, Paul remu removes that excuse. He goes through all the steps that were needed for the Jews to call on God and believe. And he ticks them off one by one. To call on God, they have to believe first. To believe, they've got to hear. To hear, someone has to preach. For someone to preach, he has to be sent. But that's what's happened. Paul has been sent by God. And he's preached. The Jews have heard. God has done his part. Paul has done his part. But have the Jews believed? Have they called on God? Verse 16, Paul concludes, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. And verse 18, was it because they didn't hear? Of course they heard. The message has gone to the ends of the earth. Verse 19, the problem is not in the hearing, the problem is in their understanding. More Old Testament quotes that prove that God has kept his part of the deal. The problem is not God's reliability. The problem is human 
willful defiance. Paul concludes in verse 21, concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's the Jews. That's the answer to why they haven't received the message. And so we'll stop there for today. Paul's asked the question, has God's word failed? And his answer, God hasn't failed Israel. Israel's failed God. God hasn't failed Israel. Israel's failed God. And Paul has to comfort himself with that truth. So where does that leave us? How do we respond uh, to these truths? Well, can I just suggest quickly three responses? Three responses. Rejoice, despair and trust. Rejoice, despair and trust. Firstly, rejoice. God, we are told, is bearing with great patience the objects of his wrath to make the riches of his glory known to us the objects of his mercy. We should rejoice that we have heard and received and trusted the gospel. Rejoice that God has shown us mercy in Jesus, that we've been spared judgment for our sin. But at the same time, these truths should make us despair. That's what the Apostle Paul did for his fellow Jews. He despaired. He was willing to be cursed himself if it meant that they would be saved. It's right that we should despair that our friends and loved ones haven't responded. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But don't leave it at despair. Paul didn't. Paul would do anything for Jews to come to know Jesus. We should do the same. We should keep praying. We should keep preaching. Our friends can't believe unless they hear. And they can't hear unless someone tells them. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We've received good news. News of forgiveness and life and restoration. Let's make sure we pass that on. Turn your despair into action. Thirdly, along with rejoicing and despairing, cover it all with trust. Trust God's election. Trust his call. He is the loving, wise, righteous God of the universe who's chosen those who will be his and he will call them to himself. We don't know who those are, those people are, but he does want to use us to bring them in and we can trust that he's trustworthy. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for a glimpse behind the curtain today of your character and your purposes in your world. Uh, it's a difficult, complex passage. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding, uh, that your spirit would give us joy, that we might despair, that leads to action, uh, to proclaim the message to those we love who don't yet know you. And we pray that through it all that we would trust you, the good, faithful, reliable, merciful God who sent us Jesus. Amen.